we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, um, where he focuses on living in, living by grace, living in grace. As we've been saying at the beginning, as we think of orienting ourselves to understand the times, it's a mistake to think of the early church as channeling a pristine, pure version of the gospel. We tend to think of it probably as the beginning of a mountain stream. That in the beginning of it, that it was crystal clear and pure, and, and that's not the way that it was in the early church. From the get-go, different versions of the good news were proclaimed. Uh, making it hard to believe or understand or know what the true gospel was. After Paul left Galatia, located in present-day Turkey, Jerusalem-based missionaries arrived. They claimed to have, being from Jerusalem, first-hand knowledge of the gospel. They claimed to have gotten the version where the gospel originated. And they accused Paul of taking liberties with the gospel and passing on a version of the gospel to the Galatians that wasn't original. Paul writes this letter to the Galatians to address this charge. He insists that his understanding of the gospel didn't depend on anyone from Jerusalem. Frankly, it didn't depend on anyone living on the planet. It depended on a first-hand revelation from Jesus Christ himself on the far side of his resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul claims, and for this reason he details in this letter the circumstances of his conversion. We've looked at this over the past weeks, and he said, I wasn't in Jerusalem. And the reason why he wants to do that is is to address this charge. His first visit to Jerusalem came three years after his conversion. Uh, His second visit to Jerusalem occurred 14 years after that, and it's on the heels of this second visit where they had a council that um, came a defining moment that we're going to read about this morning in Paul's life, probably Peter's life, and definitely in the life of the church, it involved a confrontation between Peter and Paul. What it says, but when Cephas, it's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So... We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Antioch is the third largest city at that time in the Roman Empire. It was about 300 miles from Jerusalem. There was a large Jewish community there because it was located close to the Jewish mainland, Jewish homeland, and the followers of Christ there were first called Christians in Antioch. That's where they coined the term Christians. It was an active Christian community there. Peter went to Antioch sometime after the Jerusalem Council, where they met, and it was determined at that time the Gentiles, in order to be accepted by God, didn't need to be circumcised. So they tacked that down, and they stipulated a few other things, but Paul left there feeling good about what had happened, and following that council, then Paul went on and Peter visited Antioch. Jewish and Gentile Christians in Antioch, first called Christians, were meeting together for fellowship and meals. Just getting together was important to be together, and in that culture, when you ate with somebody, you were signifying something more than let's fill our stomachs. It was a sense of connection. Uh, Peter joined these gatherings and sat down with Jews and Gentiles and ate and felt okay about it. That is, until word got to Jerusalem about what he was doing. James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he then, following his half-brother's death and resurrection, became a believer. He didn't believe in his brother during his lifetime, but on the far side of it, saw and he became a pillar in the church and the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. He learned about what Peter was doing, and he sent a delegation to register strong opposition. James was concerned that if Peter sat down to meals with Gentiles, how would he be perceived in his missionary labors to other Jews because he was an apostle to the Jews. That was his. And if he is sitting down with Gentiles, what James is indicating, who's going to listen to you, Peter? You're sitting down and you're, you're doing something that exposes you to questions. And, and that was a problem. Non-Christ non, non believing Jews would have difficulty taking seriously the witness of an individual who associated with Gentile sinners. Jews could eat with Gentiles under the right circumstances and if they asked the right questions. Um, any shared meal would be perceived by some Jews as exposing that person to potential idolatry. I mean, they didn't tithe things. They might even be eating meat sacrificed to idols, which you can't partake of. And so if you sat down to eat with a Gentile, you made sure that you asked the right questions. And um, you might they might violate the Mosaic law. Perhaps Peter and other Jewish Christians had eaten without asking the right questions. Again, James was in all likelihood his issue with Peter concerned Peter's witness to fellow Jews in and around the Jewish homeland. And he felt that, Peter, what you're doing is putting your ministry in jeopardy. If you're going to talk about Jesus, 
as the Messiah, and you are doing things that are going to disqualify you, you are doing something that will cause your ministry to evaporate. Holy smokes. What ended up happening, um, Peter said, okay. And he started to separate from sitting down at table with Gentiles. He started and kept doing it. Barnabas saw him doing it, and he kind of picked up his plate and his cup, and he left the Gentile tables as well until the Gentiles are sitting in one place and the Jews are sitting in another. Paul finds out about this. And he sees the handwriting on the wall. Peter is effectively, and he doesn't see this, but Paul saw it. He is effectively forcing the Gentiles to be circumcised in order to continue to have fellowship with Jews. Now, nobody else saw it that way, but Paul saw where this was going to end. Where would it stop? Okay, so you can't sit down at a table, and then you have to do this, and then you have to do this. And he knew that it wouldn't stop. And so what Paul determined, it needs to stop. Needs to stop now. And he puts himself in a position where he's going to um, go face-to-face with the leader of the Christian church. He says that Peter separated himself, charged Peter with separating himself from the Gentiles. Separate is the regular Jewish term for avoiding unclean persons for the sake of purity. So if you were a Jew, you separated, distinguished, didn't go near unclean. And you separated clean from unclean. And, and so that's what Paul is charging Peter with. Uh, again, they, because it was a public thing and he was separating into different tables, uh, Paul did not just do it in private. It's a public gathering, and Peter is publicly. And so Paul calls him out in public. And we find in the verse, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? They didn't understand. Everybody didn't understand. But Peter understood the charge. He understood what was happening. Paul doesn't charge Peter with apostasy. He doesn't say you're not believing. He does charge him with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. At the time, a hypocrite was somebody who donned a mask and played a part. And that's what Paul is charging Peter with. Peter, you're playing a part. This is not behavior that is in line with the truth of the gospel. You are not acting in line with your beliefs. You're believing one thing and you're doing another. And he calls them out in front of everyone. We don't know what happened as a result of this rebuke in public. The fact that Paul doesn't go on to say, Peter got up and say, look, man, I'm really sorry. You know, I just... mm, That we don't know what happened. So probably what happened, it wasn't impactful that Peter resisted Paul's influence on this occasion. 
But um, this was the first of many instances. Um, stepping back, as you look at this, this wasn't an accident waiting to happen. What was happening, you have Peter and Paul and what they represented, an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. That's what we have. And they're going to collide, and they're going to collide again and again. And what this is about, it's about the old covenant colliding headlong with the new. And that's what's happening. And that's what Peter understands is happening. That's what Paul, I'm sorry, that's what Paul understands is happening. The Jews believed, as many believe, that the old covenant law gives life. That was the sense. And the Old Testament itself says this. Deuteronomy 4.1 says, Listen to the statutes and ordinances that I am teaching you. And do them so that you may live. It says in Leviticus 18, you shall therefore keep my statutes and ordinances by doing which a man shall live. So, keeping the commandments, doing what Moses indicated. Keeping the commandments was associated with life. And Paul affirms the opposite. It doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. Following his conversion, we talked about Paul going to Arabia. And that's in the three years, so he, he gets converted. And then for three years, he goes somewhere. And what we have seen in previous weeks, we looked at it. He went to Arabia. And we don't know what he did there. It's Some people think he did evangelism, but there weren't a lot of people in Arabia. So he probably didn't do evangelism. And as we've, as we've been looking at I think maybe we don't have that on there. No. Okay. There is what Mount Sinai is located in Arabia. And so what must have happened, likely to have happened, Paul went there and visited Mount Sinai. And at that point, perhaps he even in the second Corinthians, he talks about having this third heaven experience where he talks to Jesus face to face and Jesus tells him things. This happened on several occasions. Perhaps the first one came at Mount Sinai within years of his conversion. And at that point, Jesus endowed Paul with something that no one else on the planet had, a clear understanding of how the old covenant contrasts with the new. And Paul comes away from that understanding the new covenant is not an old covenant amendment. It's not an addition. They don't overlap. They're not two versions of the same thing. Paul comes away from that with an understanding that if you understand, it's shocking. He ends up saying that the old covenant is a ministry of death. That's what it says. Well, look what it says in Second Corinthians 3. I think it's under... The, yeah, Second Corinthians 3, 7 through 9, under the second heading, A.D. Righteousness. This is now, and he's speaking of Sinai versus Calvary, if the ministry of death, that's what he calls that. What happened on Mount Sinai is a ministry that brings death. 
carved, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit. And so what Paul does, he, Sinai is the ministry of death. And Calvary is the ministry of the Spirit. Death, Spirit. What Jesus is saying, Paul, there is a difference here. And Paul looks at this and, and it goes on. He says, Now, if the ministry carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So what we have then is we have death and spirit. We have condemnation and righteousness. And Paul comes from there and says, holy smokes. And he's very clear, and he's, he's the one that's clearer than anyone. Paul is the only one who sees then in this thing with Peter what's at stake. This is not just about eating a meal at a table. This is about life and death, spiritually. And Paul sees it, and he can't just let it go. Um, there are other issues, and people threw them out, and when it says... But if our endeavor, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? What probably is happening there, Christ is a servant of sin. What what are you saying? What was believed there is that grace can be cheap. You know cheap grace? And so, if there's not a focus on behavior, then doesn't that condone sin? Right? If there's not condemnation and judgment, doesn't that throw open the door to sin? And that's what some are alleging, that in not what Paul is saying about what Jesus did, that makes Jesus a servant of sin, Paul, because if you don't put the load on people, they're just going to go sin and they're going to love it. And Paul's point is, I didn't make up salvation. He did. I didn't invent this, nor did I learn it from anybody. This is what Jesus told me and what he told me to say. Death, spirit, condemnation, righteousness. It's that simple. It's black and white, life and death. Um, Paul cuts to the heart of the matter in a passage that, I really love this. this is a very much loved passage. Second Galatians two nineteen and twenty. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We think I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Um, some teach that what this is about is the death of self. You're not supposed to live. It's just supposed to be Christ that lives in you. So you need to die and Christ needs to live in you. How does that work? It sounds good. 
It sounds, oh yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I need to die and Jesus needs to just live. But when you think about it, we can have questions, but even that's not the point. The point is not about death to self. Here's what the point is, through the law, I died to the law in order that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so what's the point? The point is saying being crucified with Christ moves us out from under old covenant jurisdiction. That's the point. Through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nothing. So what the point is, Paul understood being crucified with Christ means that we are no longer under the jurisdiction of all covenant law. And if we're no longer under the jurisdiction of all covenant law, we are no longer under the control of death and condemnation. That's the point. And we are transferred through faith in Christ into a place where we are under the control of spirit, and righteousness. It's not trying to get us to erase ourselves. It's trying to get us to understand that being Christians means we have an altered relationship with law. That's what he's saying. And when we understand that, it leads to life. Not understanding that doesn't. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What Paul's doing here is contrasting B.C. righteousness with A.D. righteousness. Again, there's no mistake here. There's no error here. It's not like God, holy smokes, I didn't know that was going to happen. It's not, but there's clarity, and Paul understood it. Look what it says in terms of how do you become righteous as part of the law, part of the Old Covenant. Look what it says in Leviticus 11. I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves. Make yourself holy. Therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. Okay, how do you do this? How do you be holy? According to the Old Covenant law. You separate yourself. You separate from unclean places and unclean people and unclean food. You separate yourself. That's how, look what it says. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming things that crawls on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So to be holy, you distinguish between clean and unclean. Foods, people, places. And so that's the way you demonstrated your holiness. If this is an unclean place, you go over here. You separate from it. And that's what's happening with Peter. And Paul understands the implications. People are going to start separating from people. That's what Peter was doing. And Paul says, time. Peter, you're off by a covenant. They have a face-to-face. 
B.C. righteousness is based on separation, and you know why he knew it? Paul was a Pharisee. You know what Pharisee, the name Pharisee means? Separated one. He got this. And so Paul, more than anyone, would understand the concept of separation. As a Pharisee, what they would do if a Pharisee came to your house and you're a Jew, they would say, uh, I, uh, the bed that you're serving me, it was made with wheat that had been tithed, was it not? Did you take the wheat grains and select out one for every ten? You didn't? I can't eat this food. I can't eat this food. They were meticulous. They just, they just were fastidious about it. They separated. They wouldn't, if you were not a righteous person and you sat in the seat and you got up, I can't sit there. They walked around and then they had to clean their hands with ritual cleansing because they might have touched something unclean. Paul spent his whole life separated and then Christ came to him and he then knocked him off his horse and then Paul probably has conversations with Jesus and Paul, you, you mean Jesus? That thing about separating and I spent my whole, I don't have to do that? That's right, Paul. You don't do that. You mean all those years? Yes. You know what's interesting? The one who was the apostle to the Gentiles was one who had been pulled the furthest into Judaism. So different individuals who didn't know Judaism like Paul did said, oh yeah, you go ahead and separate from, you separate, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, you just Gentile over there. Paul says, no, because he understood it better than anyone. And he knew where it would lead because he lived that life. And he says, no, no. Uh, B.C. righteousness. When some individuals are looking at this, think that, well, Paul isn't really having an issue with the old covenant law. He's just having issues with people who misapply it. They become a little legalistic. That's what he's really tagging. Not obeying the commandments, but being legalistic about it. No, he isn't. It's not the, not the deal. He's talking about the old covenant law. It talks about separation, and that's how you become righteous. And Paul says the old covenant had been, well, what did Jesus say? This is my body. This is my blood. This blood is the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Paul is not opposing the misapplication of old covenant law. He's opposing the proper application of it. You can't be righteous by obeying the commandments. If righteousness could come from the law, Christ died for nothing. Of course, we don't get confused about that today. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. If Paul were around today, he would be very controversial, even though his writing is here. A.D. Righteousness, there's a 
an article with this. I'm not going to read it, but there's an article about this passage. Paul confronts this in Corinth as well, what it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons. You shall be sons and daughters to me, um, says the Lord Almighty. The passage, you know what I think I might do? I lied. I'm going to read this. If you want to follow along, do so. If not, just listen. This is from a um, Vase for Grace, which is the devotional study of uh, 2 Corinthians that I wrote. Uh, This passage is frequently used by some Christians to warn other Christians not to date, marry, go into business with, or enter into any type of binding partnership with non-Christians. You know, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. So, you know, just go to Christian businesses and only drink milk from Christian cows. And, um, it's, it goes on, to be sure, the Bible encourages followers of Christ to marry other Christians. It says a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. However, the Bible does not encourage followers of Christ to isolate themselves from unbelievers. In Paul's Paul's writings, he clearly opposes the practice of sacred separatism. He opposes it. He says, I have written you in my letters not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meeting the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. You can't leave that. How can you leave that? So what then is Paul prohibiting when he writes, do not be yoked together with unbelievers? It appears that false spiritual authorities had infiltrated the church in Corinth and were influencing believers there to practice strict separation from the world. In propagating their views, they would have posed questions such as these. For what do righteousness and wicked have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And so these questions would be posed. What do you mean you went to a non-Christian establishment? What do you mean you did that? What... Does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What fellowship does light and darkness? Why are you doing something like that? That's what they would have pushed. Uh, Paul poses the same question. Um, To the Corinthian believers, his purpose in doing so, however, is not to encourage them to separate from the world. His purpose is to encourage them to separate from the separatists. Paul poses the same questions to the Corinthian believers. His purpose in doing so, again, is is not to encourage them to separate from the world. The troublemakers in Corinth had been influenced by the type of religious devotion practiced by the Essenes at Qumran. Essenes were a group of devout Jews who withdrew into the desert to get away from the worldliness of Jerusalem. 
and the temple. There they practice a strict form of religious devotion, akin to that of John the Baptist. Uh, at Qumran, Satan was referred to as Belial. That's why we know it was kind of influenced by that. Paul took the argument the Essene influenced false teachers used and turned it against them. His point is not that the Corinthians should separate from secular sinners. Instead, he urges them to separate from sacred separatists. The call God issues to his children is a call to a relationship with him. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. The relationship that God calls us to is that of a father to sons and daughters. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. When sacred spokespersons minimize the relationship God calls us to and maximize the relationships God calls us from, they misrepresent God's call. When Paul saw this happening to the Corinthian believers, he reminded them of what God had said. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. In our day, we can still find the same type of separatist teaching in the Christian church. In some circles, devotion is measured by the degree to which one withdraws from the world. This kind of thinking is what this passage is discouraging. And the type of spiritual influence we are to separate ourselves from. Debbie, come on up. We're going to have a final song. God doesn't Take us out of the world. Jesus said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. God sends us into the world. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Father, we, um, we move through these arguments and they feel... Um, not strange, but a little bit, it does become, seem a little bit unclear why you would do one covenant and then supplant it with another. Paul must have been surprised when he heard it, but then he came to understand that it's truth, and he argued it, and he argued it in front of anyone. He understood what you came to do and what you came to say. I pray that you'd give us clarity. It does become confusing. You do want us to obey the commandments. You're not saying we're not that stealing and killing and all that stuff is. But underlying all the commandments is the command to love. That's what ties them all together. And, and what John ends up saying is that you can't frighten somebody into loving. You don't hang the fear of judgment over our head to get us to be loving to other people. And that's what the old covenant does. And so that's why you supplanted it with a new one. I'd ask we would understand it and that we would become Christ-like in doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.